everyone. My name's Michael Kaiser. And I'm John Wilson. And welcome to another Make Ours Marvel episode we like to call the Make Ours Marvel Mailbag. That's where we take our time out from our busy schedules of reading through old comics and talking about the stuff that you've written to us to tell us how wonderful we are. And it's fantastic. And we love it. Do we like to call it Make Ours Marvel Mailbag or did I just make that up? That's what we call uh, it, right? That's what we call it. Make Ours Marvel Mailbag. Okay. Cool. Because the Marvel Mailbag was, I think, uh, letters columns from different eras. Yeah. Okay, so we are going to go through a lot of the feedback that y'all have written us, which is actually a pretty big stack. So I think what we're going to do is we have given ourselves a time limit. And if we hit that time limit, we're going to push, we're going to call it an end and then do another feedback episode like sooner rather than later, like in a month or so, maybe. So we have 10 minutes. Yep. (laughs) 10 minutes of mail every month from now until... You know, Thor comes back. Yeah. Now we'll go. We'll go an hour or so and just kind of see how it goes as we go along. Um, I thought the first place we could start is just kind of clear out the some of the Twitter feedback. Oh sure. And some of the Facebook feedback, and then we can start going through the email list because the email bag is where it's all like nice and thick and emaily. Yeah. So um, I've been sort of compiling a list of things people have said. So that's all right with you. I'm just going to kind of go through some of this. Do it. I don't um, even have that open. Well, good. Jason Venable is the podcaster over at the Snicked Cast. That spoiler. The podcast that goes Snicked, rather. What's that? That spoiler. Yes. He says, I loved the other episode where you shut down John, his science talk with, well, are you as smart as Reed Richards? <laughs> well. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> I'm starting to have as much gray hair on the sides <laughs> as he is, so maybe I am as smart as he is. That's how you measure intelligence, right? Oh, man. I hope not, because I have the reverse Reed Richards going on with my hair. So does that mean (laughs) I'm like the dumbest guy in the world? Because I have normal color on the sides and gray on the top. Or no, that's the right direction. I don't know. Never mind. He also saw us tweeting about the the giant man adventure where he's up against the human top. And I phrased it as in, you know, is he a match for the human top? He said, anyone whose match is the human top should probably (laughs) keep their day job. Yeah. He's not wrong. No. Uh, Then we go over to Ryan Daly. Ryan Daly is a podcaster of much renown. He did an entire show on the Secret Origins comic series. He did that start to finish. Wow. He's currently doing a Cheers podcast over the Fire and Water Podcasting Network. He was very excited whenever we got to the Porcupine. He said, this is the one I've been waiting for, the Porcupine. Um, Then when we were talking about the Avengers number one, he quoted us. The Hulk is pretending to be a robot wearing circus makeup. The Hulk is pretending to be a robot wearing circus makeup, performing in a circus. And he says, I will never forgive Joss Whedon for skipping this detail in the Avengers movie. Oh, my gosh. And and you're not wrong. No. That should have been in the Avengers movie. Absolutely. Hey, maybe, just, maybe Endgame. <gasps> We do have Avengers Endgame coming up. I want to see Circus Hulk in that comic. He has to come back somehow. Right? He also tweeted one day that he's loving the show. Always always appreciate random love tweets. Um, he quoted you as saying drunk history, but with comics. He says that seems redundant. <laughs> yeah. Or it could be a good show. 
And we're talking about the lizard, and he shared his lizard story. He says, I first met the lizard on the first episode of the 90s Spider-Man cartoon. He's been one of my favorite villains ever since. I need to rewatch that 90s Spider-Man cartoon. Um, I remember liking it, but also finding it very frantic. Oh, like, is it frantic? Like, like it's just cut fast or something. I don't know. Okay. He says, my memory is it was enjoyable, but not as good as the contemporary X-Men cartoon. And no. both paled in comparison to Batman. Oh, God, yes. Oh, yeah. DC had it going on. Oh, excuse me. Uh, he goes on to say, still, I would be interested in a rewatch to see how it all holds up, but I can't recommend the spectacular Spider-Man cartoon from 10 years ago highly enough. So if you want animated Spider-Man, the spectacular Spider-Man is probably the cream of the crop. I don't know that I've ever seen that. Oh, it's so good. It's really, really good. Is that the it Teen feels- Titans-y one? Mm, I don't know. You know where he Maybe breaks the fourth wall? No, that's Ultimate Spider-Man. Oh, okay. This had the feel of old school, high school Spider-Man. Okay. It felt like that. It rearranged the cast a little bit. It had Gwen Stacy and Harry Osborn in high school. Mm. Um, but it still it still felt like high school Spider-Man. Okay. We have a person who's following us named Bobby B. He says he loves the podcast. I listen to it slowly on purpose because I like to listen to episodes in bunches. Uh, he tells us that he appreciates that you guys are not afraid to point out sexist or racist instances, but still love the comics anyway. Because, you know, we learn and that's okay. We thought one way before we gained some knowledge and got better. They were behind us, but they were still often ahead of their time. I actually don't think. Yeah, I don't know. I'd like to compare it to maybe other 1963 material. Mm-hmm. Certainly compared to like, um, you know, the James Bond I'm reading. Stanley is leaps and bounds ahead of Ian Fleming. Right. But I don't know if that's a bad example for Bond or a good example for comics or what. Yeah, I think that Stan does race relations well with like the African Americans. Mm -hmm. But like we've said, they made an Iron Man villain called the Mandarin, Mm -hmm. which we haven't actually published that episode yet. We've recorded it. And we make the comment that calling somebody the Mandarin is basically calling him the Chinese guy. Yeah. And that's an Iron Man villain. But even like, weird. you know, skip to 1968 when like Star Trek, supposedly the greatest melting pot show, melting pot show of all time. And we still have like Captain Kirk saying, ah, there's another female officer going to lose her to pregnancy pretty soon. Right. You know, gonna so get it, married right out of the service. So there's probably examples of that everywhere. And we just have to grow out of it. Yeah. He says, but this is why I've been tweeting you. Spider-Man 3 is why when I work with kids, I tell them to have the resiliency of a supervillain. Superheroes get beat and they quit or they have an existential crisis. But supervillains keep on coming back. That's a good point. Yeah. Especially if your hero is Spider-Man. God, he's a quitter. <laughs> just all the he time quitting. Throws everything in the trash. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lore Suto has tweeted at us a few times, says, Make Ours Marvel is making my Thursday nights. I seriously can on this Thursday night comfort cast. I listen to you guys right before bed, and it eases me into a four-color dreamland. Thanks. Hey, how's she getting it on Thursday nights? <clears throat> she's Yeah, hack- that's a good point. She's hacking us. Or, or she, she's going to bed after midnight. Or she lives on the West Coast. I think, oh, yeah, we're, West I think Coast. we're an East Coast midnight release, but I could be wrong. I don't know. I'm asleep during all that. I wake up and John has posted our new episode and it's like, yay, cool. We have one. And Rob Kelly over at Treasury Comics says, great, Scott. Do I love the Make Ours Marvel show? Thank you for that. Ed Moore, who is the host of the Mighty Thorcast, I believe, 
says, I got a late start, but have finally caught up with you guys. I've wanted to read the beginnings of the Marvel Universe, and now I have further motivation. So that's great. I'm glad we're getting people to read these old comics. We have a follower named Plague Squid who is very excited about Tales of Asgard whenever they hit. Well, at least there's one of us. <laughs> Are you not no. enjoying the Tales no, of Asgard? No, I mean, they're fine. They're just real throwaway, you know, reads that don't really resonate, but they're interesting. I liked Baby Thor. He's kind of gone already, but. Yeah, I think they're going to resonate more as time goes on. Okay, cool. And um, also, I, I see them as world building. Like, yeah. like, the main story can pull on this stuff later. True, because, I mean, we got in Main Thor, we're, we're getting a lot of Earth stories. Mm-hmm. We don't get Asgard stories. So that is interesting. Tim Price tweets, if you asked about Hulk's adventures between number six and Avengers number one. Ah. I, I just learned that the black and white magazine Rampaging Hulk was set during that time. Oh. It was sadly retconned away much later. Oh. Credit to Rob Kelly for the info. Well, that's interesting because we have brought that up multiple times. So I'd have to check that out. Mm-hmm. That's a 1970s magazine that I've ever read. I know that the X-Men are in an issue. Cool. Le Diable Blanc, the White Devil, uh, actually just kind of wrote a recommendation on his Twitter about us. True believers, if you are into podcasts, need to check this out. Make Ours Marvel pays homage to first issues of Marvel superhero comics, yet never fails to point out all the weirdness and initial flaws. So I guess we're known for, for sort of like telling people where these comics made missteps, even though we celebrate all the good stuff along the way. I think that, I don't know, I've re- I've listened to a lot of podcasts where they are like going to talk about something I love and all they do is seem to crap on it because mm-hmm. it's easy. And it is easy. We could tear these apart. But I do love Marvel Comics and I love comic books and all these characters. So there's also fun stuff in there and I want to talk about that too. Yeah. I'd rather spend more time talking about the fun stuff and occasionally poke at a hole. But, you know. Exactly. Otherwise, what's and the Scott, point? Right. Scott McElroy is Dr. Spidey, and he is um, known for his hashtag, all the Spideys. He has made it his mission to collect every single appearance of Spider-Man ever until I, he is dead. I, I really hope I should follow him because I want to see if he like posts pivot tables of his collection in graph form or something, because that'd be really fun. <laughs> so get on that, buddy. I want to see how many you've got versus how many there are. Well, here's the thing. He's also making a chronology. He not only collects them, he puts them in chronological oh, order. That's He has a document. That's that movie again that I'm going to forget and everybody's going to write in and say, that movie. High Fidelity. Ha! I remembered this time. Ha ha. No, it's not, though. It's not autobiographical. It's Spider-Man autobiographical. Spider-Man biographical. But he says, as a loyal Fantasticast listener from episode one, I was dreading reading my Human Torch Masterworks <laughs> Volume 1 softcover, uh-huh. but they're really not that bad. Goofy Silver Age fun. Ah, uh, Kool-Aid is tasty. Yes, it is. I love that that sweet red flavor. <laughs> <laughs> and um, let's see. Still over on Twitter, we have... Previous guest on the show, Blaine Dowler, tells us that on a recent episode, um, we were talking about the um, prison that I think Sandman was headed for. He tells us we combined two Marvel super prisons. The raft is on an island and the vault is in the negative zone. Also, I read Reed Richards' trash talk to Johnny as reverse psychology to get Johnny to take action. Hmm. Remember that episode with uh, the Sandman? He was basically like, you can't go after the Sand. We need Spider-Man to do it. Oh. So Reed Richards was actually being smart? Maybe. Maybe. 
You could read it that way, I guess. Sure, why not? But then Luke Giaconetti said, wasn't the vault originally underneath the Rockies somewhere in Colorado? And Blaine's like, yes, it was. In fact, the negative zone prison may not have been the vault at all. I may have conflated the two. So Marvel has a lot of prisons. So we're just merging prisons all around, people. Right, right. Lots and lots of prison merges. Okay, so that wraps up the main stuff from the Twitter. Um, You want to read an email while I kind of put some... Facebook stuff together, or should I go ahead sure. and just start going through Facebook? No, I'll do this really long scientific one if you want. Also okay. from Blaine Dowler. Oh, yes. it's uh, It was sent to us. It's titled, Make Ars Marvel Repulsive Magnetism Exists. Hi, guys. I'm listening to your coverage of X-Men 1 in episode 29. At around the 50-minute mark, John – see, it's your fault. John, not Mike. John mentions – that mad- magnets of the same polarity repel each other, but magnets don't repel other things. So I think we were talking about like how Magneto was just walking through the army camp and repelling anything and everything. Right. Not, not just metal. Uh, so he says, welcome to the wonderful world of diamagnetism. Or is it diamagnetism? I don't know. I'm so glad I get to introduce it to you. There are three kinds of reactions to a magnetic field. Why am I reading this one? Ferromagnetic materials are strongly attracted to magnetic fields and may become magnets themselves. Paramagnetic materials are weakly attracted to magnets, but are not very likely to become magnets themselves. Diamagnetic or diamagnetic materials are actually repelled by magnetic fields, but the effects tend to be so weak that it is difficult to observe. Difficult, but not impossible. If you have access to an incredibly strong magnet and a very tall sink, faucet, hose bib, in a wind-sheltered area or other source of water well above ground level, you can see this happen. Water is one of the rare diamagnetic materials. When the diamagnetic repulsion that every material experiences to some degree is the dominant effect. Let the water flow just enough that you have a continuous stream and not a sequence of drops. The effect is weak, so it's important to get as close as you can to the point when a sequence of drops form a stream instead due to surface tension. Hold the powerful magnet near the water as close as you can to its source as so that the water has not yet experienced much gravitational acceleration and the molecules will spend as much time near the magnet as possible. You can see the magnet actually deflect the stream of water so that it hits the ground or the bottom of the sink someplace different from where it does without the magnet and it will be further from the magnet now than it was before. So So magnets do repel things like water. And we need to do this on a video and then put it on our YouTube channel or something because that sounds fun. Um, note, if your extremely powerful magnet is an electromagnet, if your extremely powerful magnet is an electromagnet, be careful not to get exposed wires wet unless you are experiencing cardiac arrest and need to restart your heart, in which case it may be worth the risk. <laughs> <laughs> Keep up the great works, guys. So I guess what we're saying is maybe because – uh, Magneto, Magneto is like as powerful as he can be that he could do that stuff. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Sure. So I actually have some emails from earlier than that. Our last oh. email episode was recorded at the end of September. So I have some late September, early October emails. Okay. Um, and on the, uh, on the Facebooks, we have some comments going back to late September as well. Um, Daniel Doherty has been a big supporter of the show mm-hmm. and he likes to comment on our episodes and I'm trying to remember if this particular comment. Yeah. 
he remember back when we had the um the super the like the the ghost robots oh yeah on the doctor doom uh-huh. he says i'm not sure what amuses me more super asbestos or ghost robots <laughs> well super asbestos was probably used more often right at least that kind of yeah. has a purpose or something what the heck was the ghost robots even for I don't know. They were just like supposed to spy on the Fantastic Four and follow them around. Spy blatantly in the open. Like you couldn't come up with any other option for that. How about a yeah, ro- robot cockroach? You're Dr. Doom for crying out loud. You're supposed to be smarter than Reed Richards. You are not smarter than Reed Richards. <laughs> Evan Galdine says that there's an Easter egg for Now Magazine in the Spider-Man PS4 game. I want to play that game. Oh, me too. I haven't got it yet. I haven't either. I don't have a PS4. So if I were to get oh. the Spider-Man game... I would literally be spending hundreds of dollars on a Spider-Man game. I thought you meant you would just sit on the couch and look at the game. (laughs) (laughs) That too. And then you can hold it in the air and say, I'm Spider-Man. And then that's like playing with it. Daniel Doherty says, I became a Spider-Man fan through the 1981 solo cartoon. And in that show, Spider-Man went up against Dr. Doom several times. Oh, this is in response to our Amazing Spider-Man 5 coverage. Because of that, seven-year-old me genuinely thought Dr. Doom was a Spider-Man villain. Going through all the various Spider titles, I discovered that wasn't the case. Between Amazing Spider-Man 5, Amazing Spider-Man Annual 14... And Amazing Spider-Man 349 350, the only other Marvel book I can think of where Spider-Man and Doom appeared together is Marvel Superhero Secret Wars. Mm. And I don't think they even specifically fight toe-to-toe in that series. No, other than when he's just killing them all. But yeah. Right. And I don't like that annual. That annual pisses me off because it's a Doctor Doom, uh, Dormammu. Spider-Man Doctor Strange story, mm-hmm. but it is not as cool as that sounds. <laughs> okay. I guess it can go wrong. Uh, he says, oh, and I just remembered, I'm not sure if these count, but Little Debbie, <laughs> Little Debbie put out four Spider-Man mini comics from the early 90s that had Spidey teaming up with Wolverine and the Hulk to rescue Jubilee from Doctor Doom. I still have them somewhere. Sweet. Will we have to cover those? Robert, I hope not. Yeah. I don't have them. Okay. <laughs> Robert Huddock represents, uh, writes us a Facebook recommendation. If you're a fan of Silver Age Marvel Comics, you will love this podcast. Uh, Angus Livingstone says that this show is the highlight of his week every week. Thank you to both of you. Um, whenever we talked about the death of Stan Lee, Robert Huddock says the passing of a true legend. Uh, Stan Lee, you have earned your rest. And Ranger Gord says there were comic books after Wortham. But I doubt they would have lasted much longer without the emergence of the Marvel Age. We can argue about who did what and who benefited, but Stan's contribution was crucial. The marketing, promotion, and coordination was as vital as the creative forces, and Stan made it happen. Everything since, no matter who the creator or what the medium is, all built on his work. We were glad to have you, Stan. You leave the planet much better than when you found it. So just some really good words to say about Stan there. And if anybody's scratching their head right now wondering if they missed an episode, I don't think we talked about his death on our show. We just post, right. we posted it because our show is like recorded at a way different time than it's released. So it just seemed like it'd be an awkward thing to do. Um, but yeah, and, we made a post on Facebook and Twitter, I think, about Stan when he died. And just to make it more awkward, our very next episode that Friday was We Love You, Jack Kirby. <laughs> yeah. Which was, you know, not intentional. No, 
No, it wasn't. In fact, I, I, I tweeted online just to clarify, this was not at all intended as a commentary on the Lee-Kirby relationship. Um, and some positive responses to Gene Hendrix's uh, addition to the show. Angus mm. Livingstone says, this is such a cool idea. Gene's addition to the show will answer so many of my questions. Can't wait to listen to the episode. And um, Daniel Doherty says... Oh, he just, he says, it's weird. Facebook keeps suggesting that you should like this page. I've already liked this page, but Facebook ads are weird. Yeah. Facebook keeps telling me to ask him to like the page. Right. That's the thing I meant to say. You read it wrong. Hmm. Gunnar Lauhofer gives us a recommendation. As funny as it is informative, comic nerds, this is your podcast. I love it. Thank you, Gunnar. Nearing the end of the Facebook uh, commentaries, we have Ranger Gord. This episode... Just past my birthday. This is the episode here, lizard, lizard, lizard. Mm-hmm. Um, he says my real day of birth, which I guess he was born in 1963, but I doubt I made much Marvel until 1973. Though I do recall a lot of Sergeant Fury reprints very fondly. 70s so, Marvel. Happy- That'd be fun. Yeah. And the molecule. Oh, then there was this conversation. Okay, I'm glad we found this. This is a good conversation. The Molecule Man from Secret Wars 1 and 2, Daniel first suggested, is not the same one from this story in Fantastic 420. If memory serves, I believe he was the son of the original. That's why he came across as a pacifist who was far more interested in being with Volcana. And then you were like, I, I, I think it's the same guy. He was yeah. just tired of getting his butt kicked, so he was trying to retire. And y'all did some mutual um, uh, research. And Daniel finds this. According to Marvel Wiki, after being taken away by the Watcher... The Molecule Man's original body died, but his consciousness lives on in his wand. From time to time, the wand would take possession of a person's body, turning that person into the Molecule Man. It had even happened to read, read, even happened to read Richards once. Eventually, after encountering the Silver Surfer, his original body was restored. He decided to give up the supervillain shtick following a battle with the Avengers where Tigra convinced him to seek help. So it is the original Molecule Man running around in Secret Wars. However, before transferring his consciousness into the wand, he did attempt to create a son that was more powerful than himself. And that's where my initial confusion came from. So that is a crazy backstory if ever there was one. Yeah. Comics, kids. Right? Um, Let's see. Um, Daniel says that Lord Haha from that issue of Sergeant Fury was a real person in World War II. All right. So Pamela Hawley's brother existed. He was also the inspiration for the villain in 1942's Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror. Oh. He was the Voice of Terror. Interesting. And our last thing on Facebook is a recommendation from Jeff Cottle. I've been addicted to this podcast. I'm listening every day to catch up. It's a lot of fun hearing the evolution of early Marvel comics and John and Mike do a fantastic job. You hear that, Mike? We do a fantastic hey, job. Fantastic. I see what he did there. Hey. Okay, so that's our Facebook. Oh, there was another thing on Facebook. We're not going to read, but I just want to say that, Rob, we really appreciated you reaching out and letting us know about that personal event in your life uh, that, you know, the show is involved in. And that, that really meant a lot to both of us. Yeah. Um, just a, a personal story that he shared that was, was, was very touching. Um, do you have an email from Frank Roach from September 29th? I sure don't. So I guess you have to read that one. Okay. Well, I like the sound of my own voice. Is it okay that I keep on reading yeah, stuff? Yeah, go ahead. Awesome. Frank Roach says, make ours Marvel episode 25. Hey guys. Hey Frank. 
another great podcast. I told you before that I'm an old geek and I read all of these books when they came out. I read all these books when they came out. Your show is my weekly flashback into my own youth. Those who think comic books are not educational, consider this. I won my school's sixth grade spelling bee because of my comic book knowledge. I was the only one in my class who knew how to spell asbestos. <laughs> I was, it's either asbestos or he was going to have to spell transistor. <laughs> in fact, I was the only one in my class that had even heard of asbestos. I never told anyone how I knew so much about asbestos. Let them guess. Best wishes, Frank Roach. Well, Frank, you're probably the expert on asbestos because we all know just how informative Strange Tales is about asbestos. So he was there in the beginning. Uh-huh. And I swear we've had multiple shout outs looking for someone who's been there from the beginning to answer questions for us. But of course, now I don't know what those questions were. Just like I, the, I think like the mood between Marvel and DC, whether it was perceptively different or anything. I think we've talked about that before. Yeah, Frank, were so, you reading DC back then too, or just Marvel? What did you think about all that? Yeah, was it interchangeable, or even back then, was it like definitely you were a Marvel guy or a DC guy, kind of like it is now to some extent for some people? Very, very curious. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any of these late September, early October emails? All I have, mine go from September 24th, to which we read last mailbag, to October 22nd, which I just read. Weird, because I have like several in there. Should I just blaze through them? Go ahead. Yeah. Tim Price writes an email called Flatman. Okay. Because um, we had a we had a um, discussion about the Great Lakes Avengers. Mm-hmm. He says, I wasn't sure if you guys knew who created Flatman or not. He and the Great Lakes Avengers were created by John Byrne a few years after his historic run on Fantastic Four. So yes, he absolutely made Flatman as a flatter version of Reed. I have never seen that FF story, but wow, it sounds fantastic. Sue handing Doom his butt- Excellent. And you guys did a great job telling the story. I was legitimately enjoying just hearing about it, but now I have to read it too. So Marvel Unlimited, here I come. Thanks for the marvelous episode. The last time Sue was awesome. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's been a while. Thanks for bringing it down there, Mike. <laughs> well, yeah. Hopefully she goes back to kicking some butt again soon. I hope so. I hope so. I like a, I like a, a powerful Susan Storm. Or Susan Richards, as she will soon be. Okay, then we have um, Emmett writes an email called Going Through Old Eps. He says, hi, listening to some of your old episodes, and they're a lot of fun. Thanks for making this show. As a relatively new comics fan and only 20, let me tell you that a lot of people in my age group have definitely gotten into reading comics from the MCU. A friend got me to start reading Thor because of the MCU's version of Loki. And I'm eagerly enjoying the Asgardian side of the Marvel Universe, especially everyone's favorite god of mischief. So we talked about that. Are there any new moviegoers who are starting to pick up comics? There you go. There's at least one. There's Emmett and his friends. Oh, so more than one. Yeah. Oh, no. I'm sorry. He says a friend got him to start reading Thor. Okay. So, yeah. I don't know if anyone mentioned this at the time, but the cover of Journey into Mystery 85, the first appearance of Loki, was referenced by the cover of Loki, Agent of Axis 9 with Thor's and Loki's positions switched because of the whole swapped morality event in uh, Axis. Also, everyone should read the whole Loki, Agent of Asgard, Agent of Axis run because it is amazing. So now I'm going and looking up Loki, Agent of Axis 9. That's what I'm you just doing. I, yep, it sure is. I've never heard of this title. Looks um, cool. I, yeah, Axis was an event where like some heroes and some villains like swapped moralities. Mm-hmm. And um, he looks young. So is it like a 
when they were kids or something? I think this is whenever Yoki was a bit younger. He was he was just he was a young version of himself. Mm-hmm. So and there was it was an agent of Shield for a while, but he was uh, they changed the title Agent of Axis for this event. Okay, cool, nice catch. Yeah, there's a nice catch. And uh, Evan goes on to say, I don't know if you want to talk about this on the oh should I um let's I don't, see I don't know what it says so <laughs> okay yeah he says. Your discussion of liking problematic things in the first mailbag episode made me think about something interesting. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Amora the Enchantress will be coming up very soon. Hey, hey. Uh, we just recorded her first episode tonight. Yeah. She is a very 60s type female character. I don't see that acknowledged very often. She enchants men to date her and has done this to Thor in the past. He puts date in quotation marks like it's a euphemism. Possibly even sleeping with Thor, which would be rape because he wouldn't do it without the spell. So she doesn't have his consent. But since she's female, her powers are treated more like women using their inherent seductive nature rather than really sketchy stuff. Um, Okay, let's finish up his thought and we'll come back to that. I like it more myself and I don't think that makes me a bad person or anything, but I think she says a lot about how women were seen in the 60s and especially how female supervillains were portrayed with similar characters like Poison Ivy. If she were a man, I think Amora would probably be treated like a much scarier villain. Just a thought I had and I was curious if you had any opinions or other examples to share. What are your thoughts, Mike? Well, you know, in the 60s, I don't think men could be raped. That's probably the attitude. Right. That was probably the attitude at the time, yeah. It's probably the attitude now for, you know, four, out of, four out of five guys you ask. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, there is a point to that. Like, oh, no, you have to have sex with the Enchantress. Your life's over. Boo-hoo. You know? Like, a lot of guys would be absolutely fine with that. Um, that would be an interesting story if they did that now. Right. Um, um, but, you know, I don't, I don't want to just say, like, oh, all the 60s Marvel women are the same because they haven't been. And they're all written by the same guy. But Jane is not the same as Wasp, who's not the same as Enchantress. Well, Wasp and Enchantress, we kind of thought were sort of the same in a way. Um, I don't know. There's some differences. There's all there's always sexism surrounding them, though, because mm-hmm. you know it's 1963, 1964. What are you going to do? I guess. Well, one of the things I wrote down in my notes for that issue is that um, she was confident. She was. Um, you know, full of herself and her, 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 you know, sense of self rather. Mm-hmm. Um, and she did whatever she wanted to, when she wanted to, because she wanted to. And she was fully empowered in her sexuality. And so, of course, all of these things together make her a, a villain. <laughs> Again, though, but you could say that about the wasp. You could say all those things about the wasp. I hadn't thought about that when I wrote that down. Yeah. So, you know, Janet Van Dyne is also very capable, very confident in her sense of self. She um, she does whatever she wants to, whatever she wants to. And Henry is often left trying to catch up. And she owns her sexuality. She is attracted to Henry Pym. She is, you know, pursuing that thing. And she's, you know, succeeding. She's winning him over. And has no problem saying that Thor is hot. Yeah. At the same time, right. Um, um, and we it, don't like it. When- go ahead. We don't like it whenever that's her only note. We like her when she's written with more going on like she was in earlier stories, but mm. it's a good note. Yeah. I mean, they could have written the Enchantress like, sure, I'll use my beauty and power to help you, Loki, and that's it. But, you know, we got a better sense that she was doing whatever she wanted. Even though Loki asked her to help, she was into it because she wanted Thor for herself. Mm-hmm. And I would say, like, beyond the 60s, either sadly or not sadly, like mythology and stories going back as far as you can go back, probably have examples of women being, you know, seductresses of men, right? Yeah. And it seems 
you know, Emmett makes a point that women seducing men against their will is treated differently than the reverse of the genders. Now, there are some reasons for that. Sexual dynamics between the two are very different. Mm -hmm. And historically, men have abused women infinitely more than women have abused men. But I, I don't think that we can erase the concept of, of you know, male victim rape. Uh, that that does happen, and I think that Enchantress's activities certainly fall within that realm. They're just never treated like that in any stories that I've read. No, and luckily Thor's immune to all that anyway. So Thor is immune to all that anyway. You and I were talking about the Purple Man because he's uh-huh. in an early Daredevil story, and you know he's never done with. They don't do this with him early on, but later on, of course, Purple Man uses his powers of making anybody do what he wants to abuse a a plethora of women. Right. And to assault and victimize and and um brutalize any number of women. So is that the same dynamic as the enchantress has? Well, you know, they're not that different, really. Right. So why is it that we treat one so differently than the other? Mm-hmm. And I would love Love, love, love for anyone with a different viewpoint, especially if you are a female listener, to write in response to that. Because I always want to hear other opinions and learn from them, especially if you think if you disagree. Or if there has been a story where, like, from the point of view of a male who's been a victim of the Enchantress and having a problem with it, that'd be interesting, too. Because as far as I know, oh, there, there yeah. isn't one. But maybe there is. Right? Like, where's the... Uh, Jessica Jones version of, you know, an enchantress victim for a guy like life ruined because she had him under his spell for a year or something, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I want to see that too. Um, next email. Yeah. I've got, I think one or two more that dork without a podcast right <laughs> said, and uh, he says, hi guys. First time commenter here. Love this podcast and can't wait for the Avengers and X-Men. I really enjoyed the annuals episode and especially found the question of if Namor is a mutant or not to be an interesting subject. Personally, I would argue yes, because while he and his cousin do have the same powers, I think that's a fairly common trait in mutant families. Nightcrawler is blue. So is his daughter. Jean Grey and her daughter, Rachel, both have telepathy. So I think that mutants having similar powers in the same family is just a thing that happens. Unless, of course, there's a human-Atlantean hybrid character outside of Namor's family. If there is, then just ignore the whole point. <laughs> Anyways, love the show and hope to hear more. And until the Marvel superheroes start defeating their enemies by throwing hostess fruit pies at them, make my Marvel. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think there is. I don't know. That's a good question. Has any other Atlantean ever had sex with a human and had a baby that wasn't related to Submariner? Yeah, I don't even know where Namora and Namorita come from as far as, like, genealogically i thought they were half atlantean though and half human but maybe not i don't know yeah i don't know they're cousins with name or that means that other people in his family have been with humans i guess weird i don't know i don't know mutant uh rules are different i guess with the whole mutant gene and you know marvel just making stuff up so and namor is like one of the biggest aspects of marvel that is also a really huge blind spot for me yeah i don't know a lot about him either but hey, that's why we're doing the show. Well, yes, sure. That's why I'm doing it. <laughs> For Namor, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so Tim Price writes us, uh, Mr. Sandman. Mr. Sandman. Do, 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 do. 
He says, Amazing Spider-Man continues to deliver some good comics and with the supervillains, which is awesome. The Sandman is such a pure comics villain to me. He turns into sand. Sounds ridiculous. But then the creators do great stuff with that power and the joy follows. And Ditko's style was spot on. He gave Sandman a grittiness that I love to this day. Few other artists try to capture that look, but they probably shouldn't try. There is only one Ditko. Great. Now I've made myself sad. Enough of that. It is like we take these characters for granted, but sometimes you do got to think like there was a guy, there was a time when there was no Sandman and someone sat down and thought, you know, it'd be cool. A guy who could turn to sand. Right. That's an imagination right there. And it is cool. And it is a very powerful power too. Um, But yeah, it didn't always exist. Someone came up with it. That's kind of weird. The neat art things. Yeah. The neat art things they do with, with Sandman where like, you know, jumping off a building and turning into sand as you fall so that you don't die and crash when you fall to the ground. Yeah. You know, all those all those sand grains are going to fall with much less force than a body will. Now, the guy who invented Hydro-Man, way less creative. <laughs> but, you know. And then the other guy who blended Hydro-Man and Sandman into make a mud monster, <laughs> that that was Denny O'Neill, kids. Yeah. Uh, yeah um, Tim Price goes on, oh, that's Strange Tales. It is so funny when you guys point out ludicrous science in the stories. Trace the vibrations in an envelope felt by Johnny's flame. That's, come on. I know we're not supposed to take the stories very seriously, but wow. So let's see. Radiation, flame, transistors, magnets, they can all do anything. Yep. The Marvel Age of Comics, crazy, but yes, I still love it. Thanks, guys. Catch you next time. That's why four out of... You know, five people are geniuses in the Marvel Universe because everything can do everything. Yes. Yes, it can. And I have finally caught up to your email stack. So do you have one called Ep28 the Fox? I do. Awesome. You get to talk. Tired of talking? (laughs) Okay. Have a drink. I'll take over a little bit. Uh, Episode 28, The Fox by Tim Price. It says... Quite an episode of ups and downs. The FF annual sounds awesome. The only problem is my rating list is already huge and it shows... Like yours, keep suggesting more comics to try. Yeesh. Or sheesh, I should say. Um, yeah, I have that same problem. That's why, you know, you gotta, uh, you know, only listen to our podcast and none of the others. That works. That, that, that's the way you do it. But then you just have to read three a week. That's pretty easy. Um, Strange Tales Annuals villain was bugging me. Why did he sound familiar? I had to look it up and found my problem. I was confusing the fox with the Black Fox, an elder jewel thief that appeared in Amazing Spider-Man 255 and 265. But in my defense, 265's cover does have a caption saying, The Fox is back. Yeah, and not to be confused with the father of the Black Cat, who is also a thief and criminal, but nothing to do with the Black Fox. I remember the Black Fox, I think, sort of, kind of. If you've read the the uh, original Alien Saga, Alien Costume Saga, then he's in that. Was he also in a McFarlane issue or something, I feel like? Yes. Okay. Yes, he was. Okay. So that's the guy I'm thinking about. Anyway, he continues, still glad it wasn't the same Fox or your closing tagline about until someone brings back the Fox, make ours Marvel worried me. Woo. I don't even remember the Fox we were talking about. How sad is that? Yeah, he stole some paintings and Spider-Man and the the Torch went after him and he – Oh, hid yeah. underneath a, a hemp cigar shop and oh, dressed right. up as an old lady with a purse full of glue. Lots of stuff. I remember. I remember this issue. That was your favorite. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yep. You've yep. read it Love sixty times. One. I think it's the one comic you've read more than any other comic in your life. All right. Uh, another winner, guys. Until the fox teams up with the black fox, 
Make mine, make ours marvel. So thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim. What do you got next? Rob Huddock. What's that? What do you got next? Rob Huddock? I've got Rob Huddock. He says, um, love your podcast. I grew up with the Silver Age Marvel and DC line of comics, but hadn't read them in years. Earlier this year, I started subscribing to the Marvel Unlimited service and became reacquainted with the comics of my youth. Then I happened upon your podcast a couple months ago and have been hooked. You guys are great to listen to, and it's a lot of fun reading these comics again, especially in chronological order. See, I knew we had a good idea. Chronological. That's the way Keep to go. Keep up the great job, and I hope to listen to you guys for many years to come. Yeah, I know that I know that Index Comics podcasts are like a thing that maybe some people that feel like has had its day, but I don't know. I, I love a good Index show. Yeah, that's kind of my what I'm attracted to, too, but I don't know if that's just because you and I are both – OCD about being completist and stuff. Right. I don't like, I don't know. Shows that just jump around to like the best of the stuff. I always feel like, yeah, but what about that worst stuff you're skipping? I want to know about that too. <laughs> feel like I'm missing something. Next one I have is the Alf Engers. Is that what you have? I have one from John Morrissey called thank you. Thank you. Okay. Go for it. Uh, he says Excelsior. I just discovered this podcast and I'm enthusiastically trying to catch up to your most recent episode. I'm on episode four and moving quickly. Your podcast dovetails perfectly with my own objectives. Two years ago, after, here we go, after finally acquiring every Marvel comic. What? I started reading from FF number one with the objective of reading every Marvel comic ever. Currently, I'm reading those issues that were released in the fall of 1972. Thus, I really do look forward to reading along with you both. Wait, wait, Thanks. wait. He owns every Marvel comic? I wonder if some of these are digital. I'm not going to fault his efforts. I just wonder That's if some like are digital. That's like the Mike's Amazing World guy, only Marvel. Only Marvel. And he doesn't even have all the DC ones, so I wonder if he means just Marvel, not timely. Even that's still impressive. Fantastic Four number one? God, that must have set you back. Right? I don't know. I'm going to... I want to go with the idea that he has every Marvel Universe comic from like FF1 forward since that's his reading objective. Mm -hmm. um, Interesting. But we could be wrong. Cool. That sounds awesome. And he says, thanks so much for your effort. I really appreciate it. Signed off, John. Okay. And then it's the Alf Engers. Alf Engers. Episode 30, the Alf hyphen Engers by Tim Price it says, I'm obsessed with the most important question from episode 30. Is Alf a name for dogs? I've heard Alfie as a dog's name, but didn't think if that but didn't think if that is a given name or a nickname. If a nickname, what would the dog's given name be? Alf or Alfred? Similar to the nickname Johnny. Is the given name John or Jonathan? I must know. A little Googling points to Alfie being short for Alfred. But Alf, no help from Google. My search continues. I don't have an answer. Yeah, I, I don't either. Um I, I he's a, does anyone out there know? He's a puppet alien, as far as I know. Uh, he continues, Poor Porcupine. I first read him in Captain America issue where he died that you guys discussed. Yay. That was a great story. Yes, it was. Sometime in the last few years, he actually came back from the dead. How? No idea. It's comics, kids. And has been a supporting character in the 2016-2017 Spider-Woman series. Or it's another guy wearing his costume, maybe. I don't know. Ooh. Could be. And how about Avengers number one? The story was so wacky. The Hulk is hiding in a circus disguised as a robot. I think we have to make this a t-shirt, apparently. <laughs> I have to laugh last, ah, I have to laugh just writing that sentence. Still not, 
quite as crazy as under that Hulk mask is the face of, wait for it, the Hulk? <laughs> oh, man. Now I have to lie down. Be right back. Woo, that's better. Where was I? Oh, Spider-Man. Yeah. I can see where this issue doesn't have the same thrill as its previous issues. Side thought. Did you guys talk about issue numbers? Doctor Doom appears in Fantastic Four number five. Here he is again is Amazing Spider-Man in Amazing Spider-Man number five. What the heck? No, not Don Heck. Thanks, guys. Catch you next time. I like uh, I like Tim Price's kind of wacky writing style. Um, I, I like the five and five, too. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I've thought about that before. We didn't mention it on the show. Um, I think that those are my two favorite Hulk moments ever. Where he has a mask of the Hulk over his Hulk face, uh-huh. and he is in a circus disguised as a robot. Uh-huh. Those are those are no. those are just the best. The mask one is beyond amazing, and I still want one story that revolves around that guy, like his life after that happened to him. Oh, where he like runs away? This is too uh, much. Get our superiors. Yeah, both of those dudes. <laughs> you know, like an Austin Powers uh, special edition where like they I think they had like the moments that talked about the the guy's life after he killed like a, an evil henchman. It talks about the evil henchman's life or something like that. They mm-hmm. could do that for those dudes. Those two guys. What was their life like leading up to that moment and after that moment? Oh, that's so good. Is your is your next one episode 31? I got to see about a girl. Yeah. All right. From Trey Hooks. Hey, John and Mike. Hey, Trey. Another great show. Fantastic Four 19 was the oldest issue of FF I had before I migrated to trades and digital. Hearing your synopsis made me think of something I never had before in terms of the resolution. Dr. Doom's time machine strips the herbs of their radioactive properties and presumably all residual radiation. So why have the Fantastic Four used it and before and retained their powers? They come from a form of radiation and continue to grow after renewed and repeated exposure to cosmic radiation, because Reed, when he loses his powers around issue 190, and the spiky thing are examples of renewed radiation. So, yeah. Um, well, it doesn't strip cosmic radiation. Aw. I mean, obviously. Wait, <laughs> are they cosmically radiated or just radiated? Am I thinking of Silver Surfer? No, it's cosmic know, it's rays. Cos- cosmic rays, yeah. Yeah. Cosmic rays. Maybe those are different than regular rays? I don't know. Um, I think, yes, I think that atomic radiation and cosmic radiation are very different forms of radiation. Which form the herbs had? I don't know. <laughs> um, the regular kind. Yeah. The regular kind. Okay. Um, you want to read Gene's email? Gene, Gene, uh, Norse stuff from episode 32. John and Michael, I felt that I should write in about a couple of this, of, couple of this regarding Journey to Mystery 97, which you covered on episode 32, because I apparently didn't have enough to say about the episode itself. First of all, John is correct. Well, let's not get carried away. Okay, well, that's what he writes. John is correct hey that the Norse gods, Norse gods aren't really into the you-must-worship-me mindset. They feel protective of humans and will aid them occasionally, but it's mainly they, but mainly they do their thing and we do ours. Given how Thor acts in the lore where he likes to party and fight, but little else, I could see him being uncomfortable, being pestered with questions and just wanting to leave. Secondly, as to the marriage between a god and a mortal, that really isn't something that happens in the lore. Oh, there are royal families in ancient, in ancient Europe that claim to be descended 
from the uh, whatever, however you Aesir. say that word, Aesir. But that was only to make them more legitimately the rulers. In the Edas and Sagas, there's no interactions like that. It ne- it's never spelled out as to why. It just doesn't happen. But it might be tied into my last point. So that's kind of like the pharaohs claiming to be descended from the sun god. Right, just to rule over pe- the peons or whatever. Right. Um, lastly, about the god-giant size difference. The only place where this is addressed in the lore is the tale of Utgard-Loki, pronounced Utgard-Loki, with Utgard being the word for outsider. In that, Utgard-Loki is the king of the giants and uses magic to make himself appear as the monstrously huge uh, Scrymir. See, he had me, he put how to pronounce that in there. So thanks very for helpful. that. Yeah, very helpful because I hate pronouncing this stuff. Okay. In order to try to dissuade Thor, regular old Loki, and their companions from entering Jotunheim, as the giants, all the giants that they come across are much larger than they are, but the group proves so powerful that Utgard Loki magically transports his castle away, never to be seen again. It is unclear in this tale whether these giants are of normal size for their race or if it is Utgard Loki using his magic to make them appear larger. In every other tale, the gods and the giants seem to be of an equivalent height, each being much taller than a mortal. Having Thor normal human size in the comics leads to the problem of making the giants so much bigger than the gods, making the intermarriage more problematic to picture. So that's interesting. Yeah, because he's talked about before how like that the that Odin's grandfather, mm-hmm. uh, Bror maybe, yeah, was the only actual true full blooded god because the only other beings for him to mate with and have children with would have been frost giants. Okay, so it's kind of unusual to think about a person and a giant copulating if right. there's this vast size difference. Yeah, I always assumed like magic would be somehow involved or something. Mm-hmm. But they don't really get into it, obviously, because, you know, for kids. Right, right. So, yeah, that that is very, very interesting. I, I, I'm curious now. And, of course, I mean, the stories only brought up the points that were necessary for the stories, right? Well, and, like, we're, we were talking about how, like, the Greek gods, they seem to be getting busy with humans all the time, right? So... In those cases, I picture them being human size, but maybe they're only human size when they want to be. And so it kind of makes sense that a gods, Norse or Greek or whatever, would be larger than life. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Um, next one's from John Morrissey. I love your show. Yep. Hi, guys. I'm still effervescing with joy that I stumbled upon your podcast. John, you might want to get that looked at. He says, I'm on episode 14 and feverishly trying to catch up. As I think I told you in a previous email, I decided to start reading every Marvel comic about two years ago. At the moment, I'm reading those issues cover dated September 1972. It might be worth pointing out that he is almost as far in Marvel as I am in Superman, which I am in 1973 in my Superman read through, having started with Action Comics 1 from 1938. Yeah, so you started, you've read a lot more. Time-wise... Not yeah. sure about number of comics wise. No, uh, but your show. Well, I mean, maybe, but Marvel puts out a lot of stuff every month, and I mean, oh, that's true. He's reading all of Marvel. You're reading Superman, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. But your show is inspiring me to start over, and I am thrilled to do so. Although I've been collecting and reading Marvel comics since the fall of 1971, my first issue was Amazing Spider-Man 102. 
And although I own greater than 19,400 Marvel Comics, goddamn. You cannot see my expression, but it is shocked. Okay, so earlier we were, you know, second-guessing this guy. Evidently, he's been around doing this long enough that he could have gotten Fantastic Four number one when it was a few hundred, not multiple tens of thousands. So he really is buying these actual issues. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, if he started in the fall of 1971, Fantastic Four number one was less than 10 years old. How much do you love our show? Because, you know, we can be in wills <laughs> if you don't have kids or anything. It sounds like you don't have a girlfriend or a wife because you are got 19,400 comics. Dude, you're stereotyping what? our people. No, no. I'm just saying that I'm married with kids, so I know that you never have money once that happens. Also, so, I don't think my wife would let me have 19,400 comics. <laughs> yeah, they don't let you have space. For 19,000 comics. So, you know, if you want to put us in your will, I'm cool with that. He says, uh, even though I have all these comics, you guys teach me something nearly every episode. For example, I've just learned that the Impossible Man and Mr. Mixius Pitlick are the same character, or at least fill in for each other from time to time. That's fantastic. Again, I cannot wait to catch up so that I can comment on your episodes in real time. Looking forward to that, John. Send us your emails when you're caught up. That'll be great. He says, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm with you for the long haul. Clearly, he can make a commitment. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. That's impressive. That is very very, impressive. I'm super jealous. Okay. Next one is a couple of tidbits. Yep. John Morrissey, a couple of tidbits. Sounds like the guy from The Doors. I know it's not, but it sounds like it. (laughs) Okay. Hi, guys. I'm listening to episode 17 now. I'm catching up! Exclamation point. Wherein you're covering The Amazing Spider-Man number two. We were discussing JJJ's disdain for Spidey, and John cites a backup in Amazing Spider-Man 365 as an explanation for why Jameson hates Spidey so much. But this was explained all the way back on the last pages of issue 10, panel 2 and 3, which I assume that you've rediscovered by now, because I assume that you've recently read issue number 10 and have that synopsis in the can. If not, you'll get to it any day now, so I won't spoil it any further. Yes, we did. Okay, I don't even know if we talked about it, though. We talked about issue 10. Yeah, we did. We totally did. Okay. How he's just like jealous of Spider-Man? Yeah. And we decided he might be full of baloney. Yeah. It, it doesn't, that, does, that scene does not ring true to me. It didn't ring true. It was drawn very well. And it was kind of this neat little tender moment of introspection. But we were kind of, we kind of, I think we decided that he just doesn't understand himself. Maybe. That, that yeah. can't be why. All right. But I mentioned the 365 story because I had just read that recently and I, I thought it, you know. Yeah. J- jived better. Second, regarding Ant-Man and Center City, I feel the need to point out something that you missed in FF number one during episode number one. On the splash page, the caption box for panel two reads, With the sudden fury of a thunderbolt, a flare is shot into the sky over Central City. This flare in panel number one reads the Fantastic Four. That's right, the FF4 in Central City, visiting the Flash perhaps, for the first three issues of that series. It isn't until issue four that we find out that Stan has decided to relocate the FF to New York City when the caption box on the splash page reads, at a secret skyscraper hideout in the caverns of New York, three of the most fantastic humans on Earth are found. Only three, because this is when Johnny was sulking and had left the team. Okay, okay. But I think the headquarters in issue four is the same as the one in issue three. And in issue two, they're based in a cabin. But issue issue one, one, they're in a building, right? Issue one, they're just in a random building. That is the one that's in Central City. And I will will totally cop to the idea 
that they might not be in New York City in that first issue. They might be somewhere else, but it's drawn to look like New York City. Yeah, but we certainly didn't notice the center city part, so he got us there. Uh, Are center city and central city the same place? Oh, I don't know. I don't either. I do remember Fantastic Four number four specifically getting New York-y on us, though. Right. Um, All right. Anyway, he continues. Finally, as for Thor's hammer being named in the comic, I know exactly when that happened, but I'm not going to spoil it for you. Curses. I guess that means it's happening soon or else he really thinks we're going to be in this for the long haul. But I'll give you a hint. The name Mjolnir is not first used in Journey into Mystery. Okay. So he thinks we're going to be in this for the long haul. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and which title is it used and how many issues does it take for the spelling of its name to stabilize you'll find out maybe avengers uh i think it's in, i think it's in thor okay well that's a long ways away then for issue us. 126 is the first issue of thor i'm pretty sure and we're on and, 104 yeah 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 all right please keep doing what you're doing i love your show as my recent review posted on itunes states so thank you john Yes, thank you very, very much, John. And um, we will get to those iTunes. Re- oh, he's a.k.a. the Marvel Man. Okay. 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 Well, you know, since we have it in our mind, why don't we skip over to iTunes and read some iTunes reviews? Okay, sure. Um, I am looking at iTunes right now. We have gotten three Yay. since the last time we recorded. All right. So do you want me to go through these? Yeah, because I don't have them. Okay. United Forever gives us five stars with a lesson in Marvel history. Just found this podcast and so happy I did. The hosts lay out the synopsis of all the early key Marvel issues in an easy to digest format, also adding some interesting facts. Do you know why Hulk was gray in Hulk number one? Do you know how Namor and the Fantastic Four first met? These guys will tell you I'm five episodes in and ready to keep going. Thanks, guys. Thank you, United. Appreciate those five stars, every single one of them. Wow, we answered those questions? We did. We are so awesome. Okay. And the Marvel Man. uh We know your secret identity, John Morrissey. He says, five stars. This show is exceptional. At first glance, this comic book retrospective show seems ordinary. Good, but ordinary. But do yourself a favor and do not be fooled by appearances. This show is exceptional. Like other shows of its ilk, it's a chronological tour of publishing history, this one with the ambitious objective of reviewing every Marvel comic ever produced. What makes it exceptional is the two hosts, who deftly avoid falling into the traps in which so many of their peers are mired. Wow. Mired. Um, this is, uh, this is some thoughtful review here. Yeah. For example, although they are unabashed fanboys, they are not sycophantic apologists for often unsettling Silver Age sensibilities. Example, the portrayal of women and foreigners. Nor do they succumb to the all-too-common trope of mocking and ridiculing said material with such immediate and a priori disdain that they're incapable of appreciating how progressive the storytelling was if viewed in an appropriate sociological context. So I think he's saying that we are able to both understand where they were coming from, but also point out where they made missteps. Yeah. Moreover, Michael and John are clever, humorous, knowledgeable, insightful, sincere, and entertaining. Their affection for the material is infectious, and their perspective is delightfully refreshing. Simply stated, they are exceptional, and I love their show. That was an amazing review. Thanks for taking the time to write that one. That was nice. Yeah, that was very thoughtful. I guess we have to keep Um, doing this for a little while. 
Yeah. Now, not to be outdone, John Locke 815 gives us five stars. Awesome stuff. <laughs> thank you. Equally, thank you. That was short and to the point, and no more is needed. So, thank you so much. I mean, I, I feel like he did that on purpose almost. <laughs> uh, they're just there. That's the way, that's the order they are in the list. And yeah. that's the order. We got actually Marvel Man and John Locke on the same day. So yeah. that's yeah. pretty great. But that's thank funny. you for both of those reviews. All three of those reviews because United Forever is in there too. Yeah. So, um, all right. Back to email or? Back to email. I've got John, a- John Morrissey has our, has our uh, bag full here. So this is You Can't Make it Your Marvel Anymore? Yes. Oh, no. John, you just signed off episode 18 with these unfortunate words. Until Spider-Man tells J. Jonah Jameson that he is Peter Parker, make ours Marvel. Unfortunately, as you clearly stated in this episode, you're not reading many modern Spider-Comics. Well, I hate to break it to you. Spider-Man comics. I hate to break it to you, but Jonah knows. He and Peter have been crime-fighting buds for several months now. You can blame it all on writer Chip. Wow. Zartsky? Zadarsky. Zadarsky? Okay. Just check out the cover to this month's Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, issue 312. Ah, geez. Can you no longer make yours Marvel? Uh, huh. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Probably not. Well, I think. That's, that's, that's really interesting that, that that has happened. Yeah. Um, okay. And also, have to see we can- he ends it with, P.S., if you're really interested in this shocking event... Here's a helpful article written at the time. So everybody get your pens and paper ready. Here we go. It's cbr.com slash spider hyphen man hyphen identity hyphen revealed. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. And I do see Jonah cradling a battered Spider-Man in his arms on the cover of Spectacular 312. But also, did it he find out about his identity in Civil War? Or was I wrong about that? Uh, well, yeah, the entire world found out his identity about Civil War, but everybody was made to forget it. Okay. During the psychic mind block era. That's handy. It is It is very handy to have a psychic mind block that you can whip up with your favorite um, Sorcerer Supreme and Scientist Supreme. So, John Morrissey continues on with Sarah's Century is Fantastic. Sarah, check this out. Hello again. Have I told you lately that I love your show? If I have, I haven't said it often enough. Um, yeah, I love your show. Why am I writing now? To thank you for inviting Sarah Sentry on your show to discuss Ant-Man and the Wasp, a not-comic special number four. She is wonderful. And at the risk of being labeled a hater, she has been more entertaining than some of your other uh, not-comic special hosts. Sarah did what she was invited to do. She discussed the movie and its relationship to the comics and vice versa. She did not mention the off-screen relationships of Michelle Pfeiffer, Michael Douglas, Paul Rudd, how each got along with the director of the film, Peyton Reed, and that is exactly what I was looking for. She was bright, sweet, sincere, enthusiastic, objectively affectionate, optimistic. I welcome her return enthusiastically, um, and thank you again for your wonderful show. Was there something that went on with the director and the actors of that movie? I don't know. I um, I was not aware of anything going on there, so... Yeah. I guess he appreciates just sticking to the stuff at hand. And, you know, we have a variety of guests on our show because they have a variety of perspectives. I know not every single person's perspective is to every person's taste in listener land. So I appreciate you sharing what you what you like more, John. And that's great. But um, but hopefully, you know, 
you can still get stuff out of the different perspectives that come to the show. However, Sarah's going to be back a lot in 2019. So <laughs> yeah, just throw it out there. So the next one I have is Spidey's initial chronology. Is that what you have? That's what I have. Okay. Also, John Morrissey. Um, hi, guys. I'm on episode 22 and plowing right along. And while you're discussing Amazing Spider-Man number three and the use of super hyphen man by Doc Ock in the issue, it got me thinking about John's hypothesis about the actual chronology of the first few Spidey stories as published in Amazing Fantasy and then Amazing Spider-Man. I've noticed something about the lettering, and I think it might contradict John's hypothesis that these first few stories were published in a different order than they were created. The evidence I'll use is whether or not the letterer used a hyphen in Spider-Man okay. or not, i.e., did he write Spider no hyphen man? It's hard to read it that way, but that's what he did. Um, I read and heard Stan say many times that he purposely wanted Spider-Man to include a hyphen so that it was immediately distinguishable from Superman with no hyphen. Trouble is, Stan, or his letterers, didn't feel that way initially. Here's the synopsis of the gestation of the use of the hyphen. Amazing Spider-Man number 15. The letterer is Artie Semek, according to comicbookdb.com. The hyphen is used only twice, on the cover, inconsistently, and in the title of the 11-page story. Everywhere else throughout the 11 pages, the hyphen is not used in Spider-Man. ASMR number... Spiderman. Spiderman, right. ASMR number one. The letterer of the story of story number one is Johnny D and John Duffy for story number two. These are both pen names for John Duffy. The hyphen is used consistently on the cover in three places and inconsistently on the splash page two of three times. Then the hyphen is used once on page four, not counting word wrapping at the end of the sentence, in the title of part two on page seven, and in the title of part three on page 12. Then suddenly, in the chameleon story, the hyphen is used consistently throughout the 10-page story. Then in Amazing Spider-Man 2, it's used consistently throughout the Vulture story, as lettered by John Duffy, and then also through the Tinkerer story, as lettered by Art Semek. And ASM number three, John Duffy is back for the full-length Doc Ock story, and the hyphen is used throughout and forevermore until the first Tobey Maguire movie. What? Uh, my point is, the hyphen was essentially not used in Amazing, in Amazing Spider-Man number 15 and not used in the first story in Amazing Spider-Man number 1, but then Stan points out that it looks too much like Superman without a hyphen and immediately and permanently changed it is made such that it is used in Amazing Spider-Man number 1's second story and in both stories in Spider-Man number two and in the full length number three and for the rest of the run. This consistency, even with letters changing, suggests to me that they that the stories were published in the order that they were created. What do you guys think? As always, thanks for a fantastic, amazing, invincible, mighty, incredible, marvelous podcast. Um, well, since it's my hypothesis and theory, uh, I'll, I'll talk about this. And then if you, uh, you know, feel free to contribute anything you want. Um, I think that using internal evidence like this is a fantastic way to approach comics analysis and exploring the history. And I love the effort you've done on this. Um, so if I understand you correctly, the, the hyphen was inconsistent in the first two stories, the amazing fantasy 15 story and the astronaut story, amazing Spider-Man one after that, it was used consistently. So here's my thought. If the vulture story was at least partially done before the chameleon story, then your hyphen usage is still there. The hyphen usage in number two and the hyphen usage in the first, in the second half of number one um, are both consistent. And that's my 
working theory so far about how the stories were done. I'm not necessarily stating that the vulture was drawn, colored, inked, scripted, and lettered before they did the chameleon story. But I think that, you know, Amazing Fantasy was canceled after the astronaut story and the vulture story were already in the works. I think that the chameleon story in the back of number one was the return to Spider-Man after some time off. Maybe there was some polishing that they did in number two for the vulture story after that. And then the tinkerer story at the back of number two was done after that. That's what I was thinking is there's nothing to say that your theory is wrong because it doesn't mean it was completely finished when they put things out of order. Right. Lettering comes after plot, script, and pencils. Then it comes lettering and then inking and coloring. So they could have had all the way up to the drawings done uh, and just sitting there before they decided to rearrange everything. And then the letterer came in and did his his stuff in one, two, three, four order. So maybe that evolution is in order, but not the plots or the art per se. Right. Um, I think that with with a couple of exceptions, Marvel hasn't really done multiple stories about the same character in one comic. Um, the, the Incredible Hulk had like two issues where they had two stories. And Spider-Man has two issues where they have two stories. Those are like the exceptions to the rule. And mm-hmm. so we can talk about the Hulk and how the story was kind of deteriorating and the series was kind of going downhill and maybe they didn't have a lot of ideas or they had ideas that didn't know how to pad out into full length stories, which might explain why those had multiple stories in a comic. But the most reasonable to me explanation for why Spider-Man has multiple stories in his first two issues is that those first stories, those lead stories were intended to be the lead stories of Amazing Fantasy 16 and 17. And that the backups would have come in as later creations, which also helps to explain why Stanley got Peter Parker's name wrong the first time he had to think about it when he was scripting the backup for issue number one. Uh, but 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 it's just a theory. Um, every single person that could really give some significant response to that is is past now. So you know. I don't have to. I'm not going to die on this hill. It just seems like an interesting way of looking at things. But they probably wouldn't remember even if they hadn't passed. <laughs> yeah, probably not wrong. Or we'd have three different answers. Right. Um, so we're approaching uh, an hour and before editing, before removing silences, we're at an hour and 15. Let's just After do one we- more. Okay. Because this one is the one that's bugged me since I got it. So I'd like to get it over with. And then that, way, you, that, okay. way, we, that way we end on another person and uh, uh, we'll definitely have an hour because once you weed out silence and us scratching our foreheads and stuff. Um, All right. But you what can you read got? it. It's your, it's your turn. It's oh, episode it's turn 32 by Tim Price. Okay. Um, he says, it's great to hear you guys excited about Kirby's store. You've amply put in your dues to get to some good stuff. Looking forward to more. I love this idea that we had to like slave through the <laughs> well, swamps. Well, <laughs> we did. <laughs> Michael had a couple of questions about Hank and Janet in the future. Hank's first wife and Jan's antenna. Surprisingly, they both return in the same story. In West Coast Avengers 34-ish, a long time from where you are. Oh my gosh, it's that one. Yes. We talked about this. Yes. This comic that has like random bad guys on the cover, but is called The Man in the Ant Hill. And apparently relives his entire Silver Age in this one issue. I guess. Steve Englehart does a whole arc where it looks like Maria's still alive. 
The team goes to find her, fighting a whole bunch of Hank's old foes along the way, for example, the voice. And when the WCA is captured, the West Coast Avengers are captured, Hank and Jan are left to rescue them, and Hank reveals that Jan's antenna never completely died out. And using his current ability to make other things grow and shrink, he enlarges the antenna so Jan can get help from the ants. Later, they retcon the story so it wasn't Maria at all, but a new version of Modoc. Well, that makes sense. The uh, mental organism designed only for looking like Maria. <laughs> Honestly, I like your explanation about Jan's antenna going away a lot better. <laughs> um, for Strange Tales, I owned that Cap Sentinel Liberty series and enjoyed it a bunch. Issue 11 retelling this story is hilarious. Cap is basically saying to Torch, are you blipping me? Through the whole thing. It is so good. Oh, and he takes out the acrobat with one throw of his shield. Doesn't even chase the guy. Very cool. Are we at the part, are we at the, part of the bugs you yet? Or yes. any thoughts on this, this is, so far? No, this is the part right here. Go ahead. Okay. He's going to call me out. And I'm going to have to admit that I was wrong. And I'll fix it right now. All right. I haven't seen anything like the bit Michael mentioned with the tightrope and the acrobat in purple. But I haven't read enough older Cap comics. It almost sounds like... One of the great Gambonos from the Circus of Crime, the brother acrobats who usually wear all purple. Maybe we'll see this eventually. I might be listening in a nursing home by then. Worst ways to spend a day, in my opinion. Thank you, gentlemen. Enough said. <sighs> okay, so the reason you can't find tight roping acrobat in purple is because I was thinking of a completely different character. Oh. I was thinking of the tumbler, not the acrobat. The tumbler. The Tumblr wears purple, and his powers are that he's a really good acrobat. So I kind of just mixed the two together because what the frick is the difference? But apparently there is a difference. So um, oh, I didn't even write down what the issue is. But I think it's in like the 70s. He teams up with the Tumblr, and they're going around the city, and they're kind of like dogging each other in a way like, Cap's just like, oh, yeah, you're really good at being agile, as he does ridiculously better agile things. Mm -hmm. And the Tumblr's just sitting there thinking, wow, before I was even born, this guy was around. It was around, and he makes me look like, you know, he hasn't slowed down at all, and I look like an idiot up here. Um, I wish I had the issue number off the top of my head, but, uh, yeah, look up Tumblr and purple and you'll see the tight wire part where he where cap rides his uh um um um, um shield on its edge on a tight rope like it's a log barrel it's pretty cool all right i'll have to look for that i was looking up tumblr marvel just now and it showed me lots of glasses that marvel has put out those kinds of tumblers so i had to scroll down quite a bit to get a link to the actual character tumblr oh yeah it sure does doesn't it i think it's number 291 of Captain America? It's, it's got a John Byrne cover. Oh, Captain America 291. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This has got to be it. This is definitely it. So Captain okay. America 291. Got to check it out, guys. If you want to see some... Uh, I don't know. I thought it was the acrobat. I totally forgot there was a guy named the Templar who has the exact same powers. A.K.A. no powers. Yeah, it's Captain America 291 is actually a referenced issue in the uh, Wikipedia entry for the Tumblr. So, yeah. All right. Well, I think we're going to call that a day on the emails. Um, if you did not hear your email read yet, we will get to it on the next mailbag. So don't feel uh, blue. In fact, you should write more emails because that will get us a full bag 
for the next time we record emails. Um, yeah. So yeah. Send us your thoughts on episodes. Anytime you have anything that you think about while you're listening, write it down, send it off in an email, and we'll be happy to talk about it on the show. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for writing. Um, I like doing these. Um, like I've said before, it's nice to know that there's people out there actually listening. And also, I like learning new things as we go because, you know, I don't think John and I pass ourselves off as experts at all about any nope. of this stuff. So it's it's nice when we have questions that have act, that have actually been answered. It's kind of fun. I'm really good at Google searches sometimes. Yeah, that and that's too. the best that's as, that's as close to expert as I come. Yeah. And we all have Google. Right? Sometimes searching the right thing or clicking on the right thing is not as easy as it that's sounds. That's true. That's when Google feels like a real accomplishment when you actually can hone in on something that's impossible to just search for. Mhm. Anyway. So yeah, keep the letters coming guys. Uh, email address is podcast at makehoursmarvel.com. The uh, contact form on the website, makehoursmarvel.com, is also a great way to to write to us. Uh, you can follow my other two shows, All the Pouches and Image Comics Podcast, at All the Pouches on Twitter, and my Japanese superhero show um, about those, those, you know, predecessors to the Power Rangers, not Power Ranger predecessors, Predecessor Ranger. Uh, that's the super silly Sentai commentary podcast at silly Sentai on Twitter. So um, yeah. And until next time when we have more emails, <laughs> I guess this is the way we're going to sign off on this one. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah.